made me sound so spiritual. I loved it. You know, as I travel around to a lot of these art churches, there's something that many of them, not all of them, but many of them do this thing called an annual spiritual survey. I don't know if you guys do that or not, but an annual spiritual survey, usually it's around Easter or Christmas because that's when, you know, everybody goes to church. Um, and so we did this at the churches that I've been a part of where you, you, you ask a series of questions and it's really you're trying to, trying to gather some data so that you can, you can, it will inform some decisions that you're trying to make uh, with the teaching, uh, the teaching schedule. And obviously, as a pastor, you want to hear from God. God, what do you want me to speak on? But how I many know it's, it's important that pastors are not preaching the majority of their messages relating only to the minority of people's lives? It's important that, we, that, that what we talk about on Sunday actually affects your Monday and your Thursday and your marriage, that we're not just saying a bunch of spiritual platitudes or kind of filling the space with, with you know, little Christian cliches and Christianese, but that we're actually teaching from God's word uh, direct, directly impacting and affecting where people actually live their lives. And so in this annual spiritual survey, we ask this question. If you could hear us talk about any topic from the word of God, what would that topic be? And we usually will have a list of options that you can choose from. Do you know that every single pastor that I've talked to that does an annual spiritual survey, every one of them say that the number one thing that people say that they want to hear from is this, what's God's will for my life? Like, how do I know what God wants me to do? Have you ever wondered that question before? Like, how do I hear God's voice and know that he's guiding me and directing me? This is the number one thing, every pastor that I talk to. And so um, as I began to think about that, I thought, man, wouldn't it be good if we could, we could kind of circle around that concept today about knowing God's will for our life? You see, here's what, what I think that we would all agree on, that your life and my life is the sum total of the decisions that we've made up until this point, both good decisions and unfortunately bad decisions. Your life and my life is the sum total of the decisions that we've made up until this point. Who you married, where you live, what profession you've pursued. Your life is the sum total of the decisions that you've made. Now make no mistake about it, there, there are definitely broken systems in our world that will hold people back. And there's family of origin issues that can, can kind of cripple you a little bit from, from, from being able to run fully ahead towards things. But, but I just believe that the onus and the responsibility is on us as human beings. And our life is, if we would admit it, it's the sum total of the decisions that we've made up until this point, good or bad. And there's a lot of people that have a lot of regret. In 22 years of doing ministry, I have, a lot, I have a lot of conversations with people and they regret some of the decisions that they've made. And they wish that they could go back and change those decisions. They, they, that is that they look at the book of their life and they're like, I wish I could go back and tear out pages of, of my life. Maybe even if you're, you would admit it, chapters of your life. You just wish, I wish I could just delete, delete, delete. I hope my kids never find out about that and it's regret. People carry regret. And I just, I just don't think that that's God's desire for us, to live our life with a bunch of regret. Aren't you thankful for the mercy and the grace of God? Oddly enough that it's even regret oftentimes that will drive people towards church and a relationship with God because they get to rock bottom and they say, I'm, just, I'm tired of screwing things up. I'm tired of doing it my way. My way is not working. God, I need a different way, a better way. That's another way to, to say God's will. And, and I think that that you need to know this, and this is our encouragement as we lean into this text today, that God wants you to know what he wants you to do more than you probably even want to know it. See, God, God, he's a good father, and he wants to guide and direct us and lead us into every decision that we have to make. He cares about the details. Listen, so you ever heard the phrase, the devil's in the details? I think God is in the details. God is in the details. He cares about the details of our life, and he wants us to know 
what he wants us to do. And, and as we approach this topic of God's will, I want to I approach it from an angle that at first glance may seem almost like it's an organizational leadership principle or a business principle, but I believe it's a biblical and a spiritual principle that is outlined in scriptures. And here's, here's the topic. If you had a subtopic under God's will, it's this. It's, it's the topic of vision. Vision. I want to live my life not making emotional decisions, but vision decisions. Yeah. You see, everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. The people that end up somewhere on purpose are the people that have a clear vision. They have a clear vision for their marriage, a clear vision for their finances, a clear vision for their children, a clear vision for their spirituality, a clear vision for their morality. Everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. And those that do are those, they've got clarity of vision. I love what the sage said in Proverbs chapter 29. He says this, without, say it with me, without vision, without vision, the people do what? They perish. I want to pause and just say the converse of this is true as well, that without people, a vision would perish. It doesn't matter how great the vision of this house is. Without you, the vision would die. But the scripture tells us that without vision, not just as a church and collectively, corporately, but, but as an individual, without vision, it says that, that we'll perish, we'll languish. And we're going to unpack that for just a little bit. But I want you to think about the powerful words of Helen Keller. Let me just remind you that she was blind. I don't know if you, you remember this, but she was blind. And this is what she said. The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. The only thing worse than being blind is actually you can see, but you can't really see. You don't have vision. You can see, but, but what are you actually experiencing in your marriage? It could be that you don't have vision there. See, this is kind of the thesis um, for this whole talk, and I think you could, you could, you could sum it up with just this, this statement that as the vision gets clearer, the options get fewer, and the decision gets easier. As your vision gets, gets tightened up and you can get focused on it, listen, the options begin to kind of prioritize themselves, and your decision-making, it gets so much easier because you're not making decisions based on what feels right, but what is right. Yeah. Without vision, people perish. See, God has a multifaceted vision for your life, for your marriage, for your relationships, for your family, for your finances, your career, your business, your gifts and talents being used to make a difference, to build his kingdom, your legacy. God has a vision for every area of your life. Here's a working definition for you. See, vision is a mental image of what could be true, fueled by the conviction of what should be true, for my life. See, it's not this that it, it could be, but it should be. It's, it's the conviction and a burden that this, this, what I'm experiencing now, this is not God's best, but I got a vision of what is. And so I, I not only see what could be, but there's a, a core conviction on the inside of me that that should be true for my marriage. That should be true for my finances. That should be true. And that you begin to take steps towards that vision. I heard a guy say one time, he said, you will move toward what you consistently see. You will move toward what you consistently see. Have you guys ever heard of a vision board before? My mom and my sister are so into vision boards. They got like these things with pictures of stuff, and they're like, that's my vision. And they said, if you can see it, you're going you're gonna to experience it, but you got to see it. And so I, I put a picture of a, of a six-pack, like an abs, on the refrigerator at my house. 
But the problem is, is that you move towards what you consistently see. So I kept going towards the refrigerator, and all I can do, have now is a keg. I got a keg. That's what I'm working on. Maybe I need to put that picture by, by the Peloton or something. I want you to begin to pray like this. Lord, will you give me a clear picture of a vision for my marriage, my family, my finances, my dating relationships, my career, my spirituality. Lord, give me your picture, not my picture. Give me your picture of what could be true, fueled with this conviction that it should be true for my life. You know, I have something. I text Pastor Evan about this this morning. I said, hey, can you grab me a puzzle? I need a puzzle. This is like right before church starts. He's like, I'm, I'll get you a puzzle, man. So he got me this puzzle right here. It's, it's, I don't know if you can see, but it's like roses. It says, smells like spring. This is a 500-piece puzzle. I can tell you this. I don't know what your theological positioning is on hell, like if you believe it's real or not, but I can tell you this. Hell for me would be a, a stack of puzzles and Ikea furniture, and, and they're like, just put this together for the rest of eternity. And that, is, that is worse than fire and brimstone, okay? I hate puzzles. I hate them. Kids, my kids ask me, my wife loves them. My wife, every vacation, every vacation we go on, she gets like a thousand piece puzzle. We don't even eat at the dinner table. She just starts putting together puzzles and we have to eat somewhere else. She's like, y'all don't touch my puzzles. She loves them, loves puzzles, loves them. I hate them. They're of the devil. They're demonic, totally. I have lost my salvation numerous times putting together puzzles. <laughs> Recently, I'm putting together a puzzle with, with my, my, my son and, and I'm, 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 I'm literally about to lose my mind and I go, I go, babe, I hate puzzles. Can you come over here and help me? She goes, Jason, she goes, you need to find the most important pieces to the puzzle. You need to find it. Do you know the most important piece of the puzzle? I said, I know the corners, the corners. She goes, wrong, the lid to the box. I said, what? She said, all you need is the lid to the box. It shows you where the pieces go. And I said, well, the problem is, is that these crazy kids lost the box and all the pieces are in a Ziploc bag. of pieces of puzzle everywhere, and it was nearly impossible. Actually, it was. It was impossible to put the pieces in the right places. You know why? Because I had no picture of what it could be. I think there's a lot of marriages that are in pieces today because they never had a picture. I think a lot of people's finances are in trouble today because they never had a picture. I think there are families that are broken apart and are just messed up because... There was no one with a picture. See, God wants to give you a picture for your life. The great artist Michelangelo, referring to one of his beautiful marble statues of an angel carved, he brilliantly said this, I saw the angel in the marble and then I carved until I set him free. When the Pope asked Michelangelo, Michelangelo about this, the, the, the sculpture of David, beautiful sculpture, he said, to the Pope, I saw David in the stone and anything that did not look like David, I simply cut it away. In other words, he had a vision of what the angel and what David looked like and anything that did not contribute to that vision was simply cut away. See, the clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decision. What are the things that need to be cut away right now that are not contributing to the vision of God? that God has for your life. See, we have to possess this clear vision in the key area of our areas of our life because the sage, he was not wrong when he said it in Proverbs. He said, where there is no, look at this, prophetic vision, he says. 
It's interesting that he uses that word when he says prophetic vision. It's, he's saying this, where there's no vision from heaven. You don't get vision from within. God wants to give you vision from above. And where there is no prophetic vision, what do people do? That one translation says they perish. This translation says in the English Standard Version, I love it, they cast off restraint. They cast off, there's, no, there's nothing to, they don't have vision to restrain them. And so they're doing, they just make any decision that feels right. We live in a culture right now that just wants us to make decisions on what feels right. And it's so subjective and that's why people are doing whatever and living however. We, we, I don't trust myself. I don't want to do what feels right. There's a way that seems right to a man or woman, but in the end it leads to death. Jeremiah 17 says, you can't trust the heart. It's wicked above all, all things. I don't want to trust my gut. I want to trust the vision that God gives me. I want to trust his word as an objective point of reference for the decisions I've got to make for my life. I love the New Living Translation. It says, when people do not accept divine guidance, guidance from God, what do they do? They run wild. They run wild. You see, but listen to me. Vision does not restrict you. It protects you. Vision will protect your marriage. It will protect your finances. You see, when you don't have vision, you'll, make, you'll go through your life making emotional decisions. And, and you'll, you'll make them, listen, when the pressure is high and the options are many, you'll make an emotional decision. And, and I'm telling you, every decision I've ever made based off of what I, what I felt, I always regretted it. See, feelings are great followers, but they're terrible leaders. Terrible leaders. You don't want to make emotional decisions. You want to make vision decisions that are strategic. Listen, Bad financial decisions are made when there is no vision to restrain you. Bad moral decisions are made when there's no vision to restrain you. Sexually immoral decisions are made when there's no vision to restrain you. Unhealthy relational decisions are made when there's no vision to restrain you. Unhealthy physical decisions are made when there's no vision to restrain you. We got to get God's vision. You see, there's a lot of people that end up in their life in this place. I don't know if you've ever been here before. And you ask this question, how did I end up here? How did, how did my marriage end up in this place? How did, how, did, how did the business end up here? Not every time, but most of the time it's because there was no vision to restrain. There was no vision. And listen, as we dig into this a little bit more, here's what I want to encourage you. Don't have general vision. As long as you, write this down, as long as your vision is general, it's not helpful. God wants to give you specific vision. Think about this. You ever heard people say, one day I want to, I want to get a job, and <laughs> one day I want to have a boyfriend, and, and can you elaborate some? One day I want to get married, really, okay, and one day I want to have kids, that's it? One day I want to retire, okay, where, how, with how much? As long as your vision is general, it's not helpful, because the clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decision. I remember when we had to make a decision about planting a church in 2016. We started praying, God, God, we've got to figure out what's the city? Where do you want us to start a church at? God, give us vision. Give us vision. I'm like, is it Bali, God, or Hawaii? God, I feel like that's what's on my heart and your heart, Lord. And... <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> but we, we started praying, and there was, there was really about six or seven options. New Orleans was one. New Orleans or Baton Rouge. Uh, maybe, maybe Dallas, Fort Worth area. How I many know you don't even need to be anointed to gather people in Dallas for church? That's just, people just go to church. Um, 
we prayed about, we prayed about Southern California. We prayed about uh, uh, San Francisco in the city. And I think there was one, maybe Denver. And I remember praying about these cities, and I felt so confused. I'm like, all these cities need Jesus. All these cities need a church. But I said, God, give me your vision for what city you want us to start a church in. And I remember writing this down. I, I spent two days praying and fasting. and said, God, give me prophetic vision for what you want. And this is what I wrote down. I want to be a part of a church that shapes the city and a city that shapes the world. I see us in an influential city that is shaping culture, technology, government, education, and business a city that is creative and innovative. I see an urban city that is dense and diverse, beautiful and broken. This is a city where a life-giving church and the gospel of Jesus is needed. I see a city where the poor, marginalized, forgotten, and broken are waiting for the church to step in and make a difference. A city that other church planners are not currently rushing towards. This is the city that I see. This is the city that God's called us to. You know what? As I begin to look at those options, you know which one seemed like it needed it the most? San Francisco. I can't say that God ever spoke to me and said, thus saith the Lord, you're going to San Francisco. But I felt like he gave me a vision of what could be and what should be true. And as the vision got clearer, the options got fewer and the decision got a lot easier. Now, here's what I want to say to you. There's some of you in here, you're in business and you, you're like, I get it. I have, I've been running this play for a long time, Jason. I have vision for my company. Here's what I want to challenge you with. Do you have more vision for your company than you do for your marriage? Do you have more vision for your portfolio of investments than you do for your kids and your family? I'm saying this from a place of, I got backhanded by one of my mentors, figuratively speaking, one day when, when he said, tell me about what God's called you to. My immediate response was church planting and pastoring, and I shared my vision, value, standards, our culture. Like, you guys have core 54. We had all of our stuff serving as our calling. Excellence is our standard. Boom, boom, boom. I had all the, I had the elevator pitch down. I had every little catchy phrase you could say. I talked for 30 minutes about it. And at the end of it, he said, he said, I was talking about your family. He was like, do you, do you have vision for what God's called you to do and to be and to build as a family? And I realized in that moment that Pops, that's what I call him, Pops was right. I had a lot of vision for the world, but I didn't have any vision for my home. I had a lot of vision for the kingdom. I had already established our core values and our cultural phrases, but I could, I could not tell you the first thing that we valued as a family. There was no, you, you could go to our kids and there wasn't one kid that could tell you a cultural phrase or a sticky statement or something that supports kind of who we are. As a family, and here's what, here's what I want to tell you. A lot, of, a lot of people try to leave their home saying, oh, that's not what we do. That's not what we do. How about start with this? That's not who we are. But you got to get vision for it first. See, as we begin to land this, I want to illustrate this with Nehemiah. Because I think that when we get clear vision, the question becomes, will you, be, will you now be committed to the vision? It's one thing to break away and to get vision. But, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you three easy points on how to get vision. It's one thing to get vision. It's another thing to be committed to it, to stay committed to that vision. Nehemiah, if you know the backdrop of the story here, in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, uh, Nehemiah was cupbearer to a king, and this king, his predecessors, had destroyed the nation of Israel, uh, which is where Nehemiah was originally from, specifically Jerusalem. They tore down the walls of Jerusalem. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem or seen pictures of it, the walls of a Jerusalem, it's so beautiful. It's just majestic. It's unbelievable. And, and during its day, it was such an unbelievable city. 
and, and, and Babylon, the Babylonians came in and they literally, they destroyed the city. And one of the things that they did, this is interesting, they, they sort of cherry-picked the best and brightest of Israel. They literally went and looked for the leaders and the artisans and the creatives and the musicians. They found the best of the best of God's people extracted them from their own city, brought them to Babylon. And remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember Daniel, that whole, the story? What were they doing? They took the best and brightest out of God's city and they tried to culturally annihilate them, changing their names, what they ate, how they dressed, everything. They didn't want to kill them. They just wanted to get the culture of God out of them and then leverage and harvest their strengths and talents to build the kingdom of Babylon. Isn't it interesting? That is exactly what the enemy still does today. And so the Israelites, the Jewish people, are now in exile, living in Babylon. And this goes on for 70 years. And all of a sudden, some of the Jewish people start going back to Jerusalem, trying to restore some of the ruins. And, and, and there was a trip that some guys kind of came back to Babylon while Nehemiah was still serving as cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah asked in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you can read it when you get a chance, he says, tell me about the city. How, how's it coming along? And they begin to describe the broken down ruins of the city and how the walls were all broken and beat up and torn down and they were left defenseless and it literally, it began to break his heart. Nehemiah gets so burdened with the reality of the condition of his city and he, he begins to think, this should not be like this. This could be rebuilt. This should be rebuilt. His burden begins to give birth to vision. Because there was something that was off and wrong, and he knew it. Listen to me. My question is this. Not, not what do you have vision for, but what are you burdened about right now in your own life? What do you know is off? What do you know is wrong? What is the thing that you're like, this should be different from that place of burden? God will begin to give you vision. And so God does this with Nehemiah. God gives Nehemiah a vision specifically for him to go back, not to restore the whole city, not to rebuild the whole city, but to go back and to lead the charge in rebuilding the walls of the city. Very, very specific. Rebuild the walls of the city. God begins to give him resources. How many know that God will, provision means for the vision. How many know that when God gives you vision, he will give you money for the vision. He will give you resources for the vision. God begins to use even Babylon to resource the vision to go back and to, to rebuild. And he begins to gather his people. And the, the, the first six chapters of Nehemiah, and I'm going to eventually get to the text here and we'll wrap up. But he begins to gather his people and they go and they start to work on the wall. And they literally work for about two months on the wall. And they get to the very end of it. They, everyone did their part. That was so beautiful about it. He just told everyone, look directly outside of your house and that broken part of the wall, you repair that part of the wall. He had strategy to get the vision done. How many know your vision is only as good as the systems you have to deliver it? He had great systems. He had people, and they were working, and every person doing their part. I don't need to do your part. You do your part, and I'll do my part. And together as a team, come on, I'm preaching to you today, okay? Together, if we all contribute and we all do our part as key stakeholders, what could God do? In 52 days, he rebuilt this wall. What could God do in New Orleans and in the surrounding areas if we all do our part? Come on. And in chapter 6, this is where we land. In chapter 6, i got to hurry up. Chapter 6, verse 1. The whole project is almost, almost complete. Every breach has been repaired. The only thing that literally is left is like the gates. 
They're about to hang the gates. and said in verse 1, Now, when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, side note, these are people that are trying to stop the work. These are people that hate Nehemiah. They hate what he represents. They, they have set up their own political force in the area, and, and now Israel is, Jerusalem is becoming a threat to them. And so they want to stop the work, and so they try to stop the leader. And it says this, Now, when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up until that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates. It said in verse 2, Sanballat and Geshep sent to me, saying, Come and let's meet together at, man, look at that word. You ever get to certain words in the Bible, you're like, I, I hickam a fram or something. <laughs> Come and let's meet together over in the plain of Ono. We'll just say that, over in the plain of Ono. And the picture you get is Nehemiah, it's like he's on a ladder, like hanging the, the final touches, like putting the gates up, and an invitation comes by way of a letter, and they're inviting him to go, I think it's 20 miles away, to the plain of Ono. It's a great spot for a preacher joke. He just knew, oh no, I'm not going. <laughs> but Nehemiah, he responded, look, he gets the invitation, just come over here. I know you're building it, just come over here. Look at what it says, it says in verse, the end of verse 2, but they intended to do harm. He had discernment. They, I know what the, the trap of the enemy is. It's to get me off my wall. And I sent, the mess, I sent messengers to them saying this. Look at this. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And look at this. And they sent, sent to me four times in this way. The same invitation. Hey, just come over here. And four times he responded the same way. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And finally the message got through to them. And, and, and here's why it's so significant. This statement, it shows us Nehemiah got a clear prophetic picture from God of what his assignment was. And it was to restore and rebuild the walls. And anything that contributed to that assignment was a yes. And anything that distracted him from that assignment was a no. And he could say with resilience and conviction, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Some of you need to get that rally cry in your heart today. Say when I say, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Listen, I prayed and said, God, I want you to show me who am I to marry. When I was 19 years old, God, who am I supposed to marry? And I felt the Lord said, well, you need to get a vision for the type of woman you want to marry. I began to write down specifically what I was looking for in a woman. I started with Proverbs 31, amen? I started with Proverbs 31, and then I began to write down just different things that I, I just, I feel like this would be the ideal wife for me. And you know what happened? The options got fewer. The decision got a lot easier. I walked into a service and I saw this brunette with little braces and she was on her knees worshiping the Lord, Jennifer D. Bainham. And I'm telling you what, I looked at her and I was like, this is, she's the one for me. I am marrying this girl. I told her that night, I am going to marry you. And she was like, we'll keep praying about that. And, <laughs> and you know what? I remember this scripture because whenever other girls would come thirsty, just come around me trying to, <laughs> I would just hear it in my heart. I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down. You know, we got married, and I remember writing down, God, give me a vision of what faithfulness and fidelity looks like. I want to break that cycle of divorce in our family. I want, I want Jennifer to break that cycle of divorce. Listen, God doesn't hate divorced people, but he hates divorce because of what divorce does to people. 
And so I say, God, I don't, want to, I don't want to divorce my wife. I don't want her to divorce me. So show me what does fidelity look like? God gave me a clear vision. I remember seeing me at, at, as an 85, 90-year-old just in bed, you know, about to go see Jesus. And I remember seeing my kids all around me and my wife there holding my hand. And I got a picture of, of being married for a long, long time, fidelity and faithfulness. I got a vision of me looking at my sons and my daughter in the eyes and saying, I've been faithful to your mother. I have never been unfaithful. I just got a vision of it. And then I begin to write down some systems in my life to deliver the vision. And I stayed committed to it. Listen to me. When the, when the decision came for me to start traveling and doing ministry, and, and I made a decision. If I'm going to be faithful to my wife, I'll never travel alone. And so anytime when someone wants me to travel and speak, guess what? They're paying for two flights because the vision is clear. The options are few. The decision is easy. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. It's not even an option. Listen, the opportunity to be alone with the opposite sex other than my wife, my mother, or my sister, it's not even an option. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. The opportunity to keep my phone passwords to myself, it's not even an option. My wife has my passwords. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Listen, you need to sit down, and you need to ask God, God, give me vision for every single area of my life, and then you need to be resilient with the rally cry. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Three things, and you can write them down, and I'll pray for you, is you just need to pray specifically. You need to write plainly. Like, write it down. Write plainly. And number three, you need to act accordingly. Pray specifically. Be specific. Say, God, what, what, give me, and pick just one or two at a time. God, give me vision, your vision for my finances. And then just write it down plainly. Habakkuk 2 says, write down the vision and make it plain. Why? So someone can run with it. So that it's memorable and portable. So that whenever you're going about your day, your Monday, your Thursday, your Friday, when, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the enemy, starts sending you invitations to come down from the assignment, you can, you can just, you'll remember the vision. You'll say, I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Write it down plainly. Just write it very, very, very simple. Here's a couple examples for you. You can write one-line statements. You can write a whole paragraph. I wrote some of these down. We want to be the type of parents that when our kids are grown up, they want to always come back to spend time with us. I want to be the type of leader that people love to follow and whose lives are made better because of my leadership. My, my vision for my finances is to tithe regularly, spend wisely, save aggressively, and give generously. My vision for my job in this season is to work the least amount of time, make the most amount of money to create margin to do ministry, the thing that I love the most. And then the third one is just act accordingly. Just, just act accordingly. Begin to make decisions based off of vision, not emotions. And I promise you this, when you begin to just be resilient and determine that God's vision for every area of your life is the most important thing, and you just begin to make decisions moving towards it by his grace, through the strength of the spirit, I'm telling you, one day you're going to look up and it's not going to be like, a, how did I end up here? You're going to look up and say, God, how did I end up here? God's going to say, I told you so. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, we love you so much, and we just thank you for the simplicity of what the sage said, that when there's no vision, people cast off restraint. They run wild, they do whatever. And that, God, when there is vision, it will restrain us, it will protect us, it will provide us those guardrails in our life, leading us towards the life the life that you have for us and the life that we, we deeply want to live. I think probably if there was a greater person illustrating this in scriptures, it would probably be Jesus. He had a clear vision of the assignment to lay down his life on the cross for us in our place 
to reconcile us to the Father, to make peace between us and God. And the scriptures say that he set his face like flint. He was determined. He, he had vision. He had focus. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't, it doesn't say it was easy. It, it says actually that he, for the joy that was set before him, it's that picture of what he knew would bring fulfillment eventually, he endured the cross, it says. It was vision. It was focus. It was determined. I'm going to be I'm going to be who my father's called me to be. I'm going to do what my father's called me to do. I'm going to say what my father's called me to do. He had clear vision. And God, we're here today and we're thankful because of his clarity of vision, the options of walking away, abandoning the call, the mission, it was not even an option. The easy road was not even an option. The decision was easy. I'm going to the cross It was a hard decision, but it was made easier because of clarity of vision of what his father had called him to do, who his father had called him to be. And today, we're the beneficiaries of that. We we get to benefit being restored to you, God, because of your son, Jesus, his obedience, his commitment to the vision. And today, I just want to ask you this question. If you're here today, you say, Jason, I'm just, I'm not at peace with God. I don't have a relationship with God, but I want to give my life to Jesus today. Maybe, maybe you're like, I don't even know what that means. But you just say, I, I need Jesus in my life. Maybe you just, you feel that today. You know it. If that's you, I just want you to pray this simple prayer. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I realize that. I recognize I need you. I can't keep doing this on my own. Jesus, I, I give you my life. I choose to follow you. God, I thank you for those that maybe prayed that prayer for the first time. Maybe they're recommitting their life to you. They're coming back to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd fill them today with the power of your spirit so that they can live the life that you've called them to live. And for everybody else in here today, I just, I wanna, I wanna ask you to do this. You, you can keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. You just say, Jason, I need God to give me vision in some specific areas today, and I sense that. If that's you today, just raise your hand. Let me see your hand. Say, there's some areas. I need, I need vision. I believe that God sees your hand. Maybe vision for your marriage, vision, vision for your finances, vision for your morality. That's good. God, I pray that right now that this would just be a catalyst. I know that you can download vision like suddenly, but sometimes it's gradually and eventually, and it's a process. And so I pray that today would just be a catalyst for us to go do the hard work of just sitting down in your presence and leaning in to you and saying, give me prophetic vision. Give me vision for my marriage. Give me vision for my finances. Give me vision for my children. Give me vision. And that we would do the hard work of crafting that vision. And then, God, we just act accordingly and take steps towards it. And that, God, we'd have that rally cry in our heart that we are doing a great work and we cannot come down. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.